This is the Tribune Audio Network. This is the Backstory Podcast. I'm Larry Potash. On this show, we uncover the backstory behind some of the most intriguing tales in history, culture, science, and religion. In this episode, a political assassination, domestic terror, and the women of Murderous Row. Three lost stories of Chicago history. This is The Backstory. Chicago's gang warfare, both organized and disorganized, has captured the national attention for generations. Sun-Times federal court reporter John Seidel digs deep in the files of the Sun-Times archive. I feel like a lot of them are really kind of symbolic of the Chicago that we all still know today. You know, there's the intersection of crime and politics that you see over and over again. The files go back more than a century to the daily news when journalism was far more sensational, perhaps less professional. The daily news documented a history of Second City Sinners, the name of Seidel's book. Chicago is just a magnet for so many different kinds of people. In 1893, the World's Fair brings Chicago to the global stage. As the fair draws to a close, Carter Harrison begins his fifth term as Chicago's mayor. He was a pretty popular politician and kind of a, a, of a man of the people. He was the World's Fair mayor, you know? He came just in time for that and to lead Chicago through, you know, one of its greatest moments in history. One of Mayor Harrison's supporters is a young newspaper carrier by the name of Patrick Prendergast. Patrick Prendergast is an odd little fella. He would quickly be judged as insane. As Mayor Harrison takes office, Prendergast has convinced himself that he was key to the mayor's victory. Prendergast, uh, he was convinced not only that he helped Carter, but that Carter owed him. And he thought he deserved the job of corporation counsel, the top lawyer in Chicago. And uh, he finally went looking to collect. Late one evening, October 28, 1893, just two days before the World's Fair ends, Patrick Prendergast arrives at Harrison's home. So we're at the southwest corner of Jackson and Ashland. What was in this empty lot here? I mean, this would have been where Carter's Harrison, the mayor of Chicago, had his home. And some guy comes and rings his doorbell one night, which seems odd that people would knock on the mayor's door, but what happens? There were people who heard them yelling and heard Carter Harrison say, no, I won't do it. And then there were gunshots. Prendergast shoots Mayor Harrison and takes off running. Harrison dies in the hallway. The mayor's son and coachman chase Prendergast down Ashland Avenue. He turns himself into police, and he's charged with the assassination of Mayor Carter Harrison. One of Prendergast's attorneys argues that Prendergast is insane and stakes the city's reputation on saving Prendergast from the gallows. All these people come all over the world to see Chicago and Prendergast's attorneys say, and you're going to hang an insane man? Is this what you do in Chicago? 
he didn't hang as scheduled. A surprising legal development, his defense team finds an obscure law that states if Prendergast became insane after the verdict, the state couldn't execute him until he was sane again. The argument before the court comes from a young lawyer named Clarence Darrow. Darrow quotes Mayor Harrison's dying words. When friends asked the name of the being who had brought him low, he waved them aside, understanding and believing, as I believe, that that being was not responsible. You can kind of see hints of his later career in there, uh, pleading with people, not necessarily to endorse what Prendergast did or anything, just to just, you know, spare him, spare this, this insane man, um, and, and the, the jury didn't buy it. Darrow's argument fails. Patrick Prendergast is hanged July 13th, 1894. He's the only client that Clarence Darrow failed to save from execution throughout his career. It was certainly for him the beginning of a conversation, a social conversation that would continue uh, for other people as well as him with other defendants in the future. As the United States enters World War I, new tensions begin to present themselves within the country. And it comes to a head at Chicago's federal courthouse, then located at Dearborn and Adams. Right around that time, uh, there had recently been a very high-profile trial there of a, of a union known as the Wobblies, the Industrial Workers of the World. The Wobblies represent an anti-war socialist labor movement. In 1918, 100 members of the group are charged with conspiracy under the Espionage Act. They just opposed the war effort. They didn't like the way society was going. They had slogans like, a live soldier is a hobo, a dead soldier is a hero. It's worse to be a traitor to your class than to your country. And it was a time when it wasn't very popular to be saying things like that. Judge Kennesaw Landis presides over the Wobblies trial in Chicago's federal building. The trial ends in August 1918 with 14 members of the Wobblies, including the leader, Big Bill Haywood, sentenced to 20 years in prison. But the story is far from over. This is the corner of Dearborn and Adams. This is where the federal building stood a century ago. The date, September 4th, 1918. A bomb explodes at 3 p.m. at the Adams Street entrance of the post office. Four people are killed, including a woman, two postal workers, and a sailor. A couple innocent people happened to be by the entrance. I think there was a sailor talking to a young woman. There was another postal carrier on his, on his way out. And suddenly, a bomb goes off, and uh, you can hear it all over the loop. And you know, it's pandemonium. The prime suspect, the Wobblies. When this bomb went off, everyone's attention went right to the Wobblies, right? For better or for worse. Chicago police investigate the Wobblies, but find little evidence to indicate involvement in the bombing. To this day, the identity of the bomber and the motive behind the attack remain unsolved, lost to history. Among the survivors is a young substitute postal worker, a man who would go on to shape American entertainment for years to come. The mail carrier's name, Walt Disney. The 1920s usher in a new era for the city, and in particular for the city's women. A 
American women are granted the right to vote. Women's rights raises an interesting dilemma when women are accused of murdering their lovers. Is there a reason why there's a rash of female murder suspects at this time and place? <laughs> you know, I think it's a, it was just a really changing time and, and changes in women's rights and everything like that. And women were kind of finding their place in, in this new society they were in. There's one part of that chapter where I talk about a, a woman who's sentenced to hang and the jurors go home and they find out their wives want to leave them now <laughs> or, or threatening to leave them if that woman hangs because they can't believe that their husbands would do that. A few of the cases include suspects Belva Gardner, Beulah Anan, and Sabella Nitti. The Daily News declares women's hunting season has arrived in Chicago. The line about women's finest hunting season on record, just a really remarkable quote about Sabella Nitti, uh, her own defense attorney calling her ugly and without sex appeal, but we're gonna try and save her anyway. Beulah Anand's beauty gives her an advantage. She is accused of murdering her lover, Harry Colstead. Beulah's account of the murder keeps changing, first confessing to the crime, then later describing a struggle in which she and Colstead both reached for a gun. But the public seems to pay more attention to Beulah's looks than her story. The Daily News called her the prettiest woman ever tried for murder in Chicago. And they just gushed about how she looked when she took the stand. Beulah ends up in the same jail with two other women accused of murdering lovers, Belva Gartner and Sabella Nitti. The jail cell becomes known as Murderous Row. Beulah was considered, uh, you know, gorgeous, and Belva was also fell into that category. And then you had Sabella, who um, really just kind of, um, the newspapers gave it to her. They didn't think she looked very good at all. And, and, you know, unfortunately, that all kind of played a role. The three women aren't convicted, but the stories continue to spark conversation. At the time, Chicago Tribune reporter Maureen Dallas Watkins is investigating the women of Murderous Row. Their stories inspire her to write the musical Chicago, in which one character is inspired by Beulah Anand's ever-changing testimony. You know, the, the line, they both reached for the gun. Well, that was her story, that we both reached for the gun. These stories have largely faded along with the old newspapers stored in the warehouse. I do think there maybe still is a little bit of a, a strain of it left in a lot of Chicago journalism, just telling interesting stories in interesting ways, but trying our best to get to the truth of the matter. Thanks for listening to Backstory. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe to our podcast or leave a review. To watch our full coverage of this story and see some that didn't make it to the podcast, visit us online at WGNTV.com backstory. This has been a production of the Tribune Audio Network.